The Life of Christ. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 6. Father, once again, we do praise you for your word. We thank you that the entrance of your word brings light. It brings understanding to the simple. And Father, as we look into this, I pray that you'll help us again to better understand what you want us to know about these parables and about the life of Christ as we look into the scripture now. In the name of Jesus Christ, Father, we yield ourselves to your spirit. And again, we receive help from above in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, this is going to be our number six of the life of Christ, and we're on page 23, and we're going through some of the parables because they show so much of what Jesus was trying to communicate. So if you turn to Luke chapter 15, and we're going to start, I'm just going to read the first few verses to put us back in the picture, and then we're going to jump down to um, uh, about verse 11 because we're going to start with the parable of the prodigal, the prodigal son here. It's a very familiar prodigal, but there's a lot of just a lot of good things and insight to be seen here. But let's look at verse 1 of Luke 15. So we remember who Jesus was speaking to. It says, Now the tax collectors and notorious and especially wicked sinners were all coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Verse 2 says, And the Pharisees and the scribes kept muttering and indignantly complaining, saying, This man accepts and receives and welcomes wicked sinners and eats with them. So that was the setting again, if you remember. The religious heads of people were all there, and they're all bothered about this fact that this guy, this teacher, this great rabbi that they've acknowledged previously is an incredible teacher. But they said, this man is accepting unclean people. He's accepting sinners. So all of the parables, the parable that we've already spoke to last week, the parable of the sheep, 100 sheep, where he goes after the, leaves the 99, goes after the one, and, and again, the parable of the lost coin are all speaking to something that Jesus is trying to communicate about what the true heart of the Father is as far as his love for people. Because again, remember, I know, I know that you know it, but like we always say, but we don't know it. It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees were bound by just that, all the law, all the legalism, all the ordinances, all the traditions of man. Remember, in another place of Scripture, Jesus said categorically, he said, you make the Word of God of no effect in your life by your traditions. And there's good traditions, but when you begin to put more faith in your tradition and your structure, the way that you do church, the way that you, as it were, observe your Christianity, you'll miss the life of it. I think I've shared already a few times about one of these times I'm just going to have to teach a course on the difference between the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden and the fact that most people in the body of Christ actually live from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, which is good. In other words, that tree is good, but it doesn't get you to life. And it's a real thin barrier between these two things that many people miss the understanding. This is why, again, Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is sharp. It said it's sharper than any two-edged sword that it's able to pierce is to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit. And the writer of Hebrews said, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. But 
It's just that things are of the soul, things of the spirit. They're so close. And the only thing that can really show you the difference between something that's soulish and living your Christianity from a soulish perspective and living it from the realm of the spirit is by, again, a real knowledge of the word of God where you make a decision to pray every day and say, Father, I need you to show me these things. So here's this man, Jesus. He's bringing this whole brand new realm of understanding to the earth. And again, it's blowing everybody's minds. You'll remember even in the book of Acts, the, after his death and resurrection, the apostles, what was said of them, remember, was that those who turned the world si upside down are amongst us. They just turned everything upside down. Everybody was used to the structure. They were used to the form. And here comes this man, Jesus, and he says, like we went to, when we went through the Beatitudes, instead of persecuting and killing and destroying all of your enemies, in the Old Testament, God said, go in, possess the land, get your enemies, annihilate them entirely. And now this man comes who says he's the son of God, or rather who they're beginning to believe is the son of God, and he turns it totally upside down and says, love your enemies. And again, it's, it's too much for us to try to comprehend, even as we sit in a little room like this, what that meant to the listeners in those days. Because again, of all the, all the things that they had in their mind, all the preconceptions, and that, that's why, again, when you approach the Word of God, you've got to do it. You, you really do have to somehow <laughs> set your brain to the side <laughs> and listen with your spirit and try to really grasp what is this man? What's the big picture? What is Jesus really trying to communicate? What is supposed to make us so different than everybody else? What is it that makes us so different? And it's again, it's just that everything about the kingdom of God is totally antithetical to the kingdom of this world. But again, the problem is most of the church right now is we're, we're gonna get hopefully to the parable of the tares. That's something I really wanna get to because there's some incredible things to see there. Most of the church is infiltrated totally, you know, with the way of the world, with humanistic understanding and approach. But anyhow, so let's get back to this now. This is going to be the parable of the prodigal. Let me just read through the first two, just so I just read through the verses here. Um, verse 3, Luke 15, verse 3, and I'm just going to read all the way up until we actually begin the parable of the prodigal so that you can see it in context again. Verse 3, so he told them, and them again, remember, were the Pharisees and the scribes. There were tax collectors and all manner of wicked sinners around. And Jesus is actually speaking to all these Pharisees and Sadducees in the presence of all these other people that they don't want him to be around because they think it's unclean. So he told them this parable, what man of you, if he has a hundred sheep and should lose one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his own shoulders, rejoicing. And when he gets home, he summons together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep which was lost. Verse 7, Thus I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven. Now this is something that he says time and time again about this joy in heaven thing. And what he's trying to say is we are to live in such a manner that we produce joy in heaven. Doesn't that sound strange? Why should there be any absence of joy in heaven? But he's saying, there will be more joy in heaven, he said here, over one especially wicked person who repents and changes his mind and determines to enter upon a better course of life than over 99 righteous persons who seem to feel they have no need of repentance. Or what woman, he said, having 10 silver drachmas, each one equal to a day's wages, if she loses one coin... 
does not light a lamp and sweep the house and look carefully and diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she summons her friends and her neighbors, and she says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the silver coin which I lost. Even so, I tell you, there is joy among and in the presence of angels of God over one wicked person who repents, who changes his mind for the better, with abhorrence for his past sins. So these first two parables again here in Luke 15, he is stating that thing. He said, you've got to understand, he's after the loss. He said, my father is interested in those who have not yet come home to this house. Okay? Now here's where he's going to start the parable of this. Now I'm going to read from the outline again on page 23, right in the center of the page here. It says, the parable of the prodigal is known for its remarkably true-to-life picture of youthful thoughtlessness and carelessness. The young man is certain of his resources and self-sufficient. He begins with the dream of freedom and unending pleasure, and he ends up as a slave feeding pigs, which is a picture of pure misery. The parable represents not only the individual, but the multitudes of peoples, nations, and races who make the same demand when they say, give me my share of the world's goods. So material, good, material goods were at the height of his ambition, Property was, was to be turned into money and money into pleasure. And Jesus uses the family circle here, making this parable much more personal than the sheep of the coin parable. So let's begin reading now from Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And Jesus said there was a certain man who had two sons. Now, can I just throw this into, this is interesting. In Scripture, even though this is a parable, but when you study this out in a good college, when they show you in the Greek and what have you, anytime you see the word certain, because he doesn't say that in all of them. When he uses the word certain, he's speaking about a real-life event that's taking place. Just, that's just for your great joy to know. <laughs> but he said, And there was a certain man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me. Everybody say, give me. Give me. The first sign of a prodigal is that language. Give me. That's what the Bible teaches. Father, give me the part of the property that falls to me. And it says, God, or the Father, divided the estate between them. Verse 13, and not many days after that, the younger son gathered up all that he had and journeyed into a distant country, and there he wasted his fortune in reckless and loose living. Verse 14 says, when he had spent all that he had, a mighty famine came upon that country, and he began to fall behind and be in want. Now remember, Jesus is sharing this to all these Pharisees. Verse 14, and when he'd spent all he had, a mighty famine came upon that country, and he began to fall behind and be in want. So he went and he forced himself upon one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed hogs. Now remember that to the Jews, pigs were the most low animal there was, and that was a despicable thought. So what his listeners are hearing, this, you know, they're hearing him tell this story to them that he's sent into a field to feed hogs, and he would gladly have fed on and filled his belly with the carob pods that the hogs were eating, but they could not satisfy his hunger, and nobody gave him anything better. But then when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my father have enough food and even food to spare, but I am perishing and dying here of hunger. I will get up, but the King James says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me like one of your hired servants. 
So he got up and he came to his own father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with pity and tenderness for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him fervently. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I no longer deserve to be recognized as a son of yours. But the father said to his bondservants, Bring quickly the best robe, the festive robe of honor, put it on him and give him a ring for his hand, sandals for his feet, and bring out the wheat fattened calf and kill it and let us revel and feast and be happy and make merry because this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found and they began to revel and feast and make merry. I know that you've heard that many times. Now we're going to jump back to the outline and just look down here. Point one, the first thing that we see, of course, is that he wanted to leave home very simply. Now the path, what Jesus is trying to communicate here is the path towards what they call prodigality or whatever. The path towards this kind of a problem always starts with this kind of an attitude. He couldn't live where he was. Father's house to him represented the wrong atmosphere. He couldn't live like he wanted to. Now, I just want you to think about this a little bit as we talk about it because, again, working with churches as long as I have, and, you know, runaways from home are always... They always find themselves, like London, of course, is a critical place. You see what happens if you're ever in Piccadilly Circus. You see if you, like I come back from some late times of ministry sometimes when I used to drive in from the west, when I'd be over in Ramsgate or places like that and coming on the A2. And I'd come right through the center of town sometimes and, you know, all the runaways are in this city, whether from the north or even from some, from some other countries. But you and I both know what happens to runaways. Uh, young girls get abused horribly. The young guys get taken advantage of. The whole thing is just a great mess. That's what happens physically. And in the body of Christ, we are the family of God. God is our Father. And we have a lot of people who, as it were, run away from Father's house because of this very same thing. You see, it's too confining for them. Father's house, for many people, is too confining. They can't live like they want to. Uh, they don't mind being part of church, but I'm sure not going to submit myself to all these what they call rules and regulations. One of the things we have to remember from day one, like God's Word says, it says, God said very clearly to us that none of my commandments are grievous. None of God's commandments are grievous. And remember about Jesus, what Jesus said. He said, I came into the world not to condemn the world. Now, I know you know this, but see, you've got to think about it. It's the Spirit of the Word. Paul said, thank God that He's made me an able minister of the Spirit of the New Testament, not the letter, because the letter will kill you. It'll put you in bondage, but the Spirit of it will bring you life. So if you can see what he's saying, every single word that Jesus brought, in other words, he said, I came into the world to save it. Is that right? He came into the world to save it, not to condemn it. So what you and I have to make a decision to believe is that every single word Jesus spoke is a saving word. Did you hear me? Now, there were many sayings that they called even his own disciples. Remember, they said, these are hard sayings. Who can hear them? But what you and I have to, you know, one of the beginning points of faith and when God really begins to work in your life is when you simply make this decision, every single word from God is a saving word. Even the hard words, those words that I may not understand yet, I have to trust that my God is altogether good. And He is altogether good. So even if there are some things I don't understand with my head yet, I'm going to walk by faith. And I'm going to believe that just maybe God is smarter than I am. How many of you know it's a good place to start? He is, isn't he? 
God is smarter than you. Now, trust me, we laugh, but I know a lot of folks, that they, the way they live, they're actually declaring that I know more than God. And I mean, it's like slapping him in the face. So basically, when you looked at the prodigal, he wanted to live, leave home because he couldn't live like he wanted to there. It was the wrong atmosphere. Point B, father's house was too confining in his mind. Father's house, unfortunately for him, it meant some work. It meant some discipline indeed. And it meant some obedience, all of which he felt unsuited for. He wanted to make it in the world. Now, in the natural, that doesn't sound so wrong, but the issue is we just have to keep God in the middle of everything we do. The Bible says that Jesus Christ should have preeminence in all things. In Philippians, remember, preeminence simply means first place. He really does want us to put him first, not because he's dictatorial, but because he knows that's the way to get a blessing into our life, to help us in every area of our life. But the first words listed again were, give me, give me. There was nothing at fault with the father nor his treatment of his son, but the trouble was in the moral condition of the son himself. He desired things that were impossible to have and at the same time enjoy the parent's favor. In other words, all these things, because again, we have to look at what his behavior was. He went out, like it says in the King James, and got lost in all this revelry and loose living, immoral living. He wanted to live that way, but he knew he couldn't at the same time do that and enjoy the parents' favor. He was prepared then to sacrifice his father's love that he might have unrestricted freedom. Now, the thing that amazed me when I first looked at this years ago and had people teach me, and again, you know, you, you'd read these things about it 2,000 times, and you just the idea is to think about it and chew it over and meditate on it, is that when he says, give me, like from the King James, it says here this, it says, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that followed to me. And he divided unto them his living. In other words, notice that the father just went ahead and gave it to him, didn't he? He just gave it to him. Now, I want you to see this. This is something that it's very difficult for some people to realize about God. If you know how to pray, you can get things that's not God's will for you at this time to have. Think about the fact that even Israel, when God did not want them to have a human king, they kept praying and God said, well, give them what they didn't. God gave them a king and they got a kingdom after the, after the type of Saul, which brought all kinds of misery to their whole life. It's a, it's, a, it's a mystery that people don't, sometimes they fight, they don't understand, but it's even like amazing when you read the literal Greek of 1 John where it says, if you ask anything according to his will, he hears you. And he will give, and then he will he will grant you whatsoever you've asked of him. It says whatsoever petitions you've asked of him will be granted. The Greek says, if you ask anything according to his will for asking, he will grant it to you. So a lot of people ask for things. They press and they press and they press and they press, and they can get things out of God's time. Now I wish I could explain all that perfectly to you, but I can't. But the fact is, I've seen it happen. It's happened in my own life. But here we see this where the father, where the son says, give me. And the father says, okay, here, there you go. I'll give it to you. Now you think, well, why does he do that? Well, it's because of what we're going to get to next. If you look, it says, point two, the father gave what he asked because this is something, again, that people really have to come to grips with. Man, God made man to be what we call a free moral agent, a free moral agent. What that means is what sets man apart from all angelic powers is that where angels are strictly obedient, we have the right to choose. 
God did not create a whole race of robots. He created a race of people who had the opportunity to choose or reject him because he wants us to choose to obey and to choose to follow him. That's what makes it so beautiful to him is when we choose to because we have paths set before us. God gives to man freedom and choice. Deuteronomy 30, 19 is just a really, you know, it's a classic verse about this, but it's very powerful to really hear this. This is what Moses, God said to Moses, to the rest of Israel. And I really listened to it. He said, I called heaven and earth. He said, I called heaven and earth to record this day against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. And then, then now listen to this. Then he says this. Therefore, choose life so that thou and thy seed may live. Now, to me, it's remarkable. I mean, our human nature. I remember I was teaching a youth meeting once, and I, I don't know why. I never did this before, never did it after. I stopped on the way, and I found, I stopped at a butcher shop. It was just north of London somewhere, and I got this big old beautiful steak. And then I bought a tin of butcher's dog food tripe. Have you ever smelled butcher's tripe dog food? And... All these youth there, and there's a table like this, and I got this, I got this like plate out there, and I scooped all this tripe out, and I mean the smell of it was going through the whole room. And over here I had this incredible looking steak, beautiful steak, you know what I mean? And I had this lady, because it was on a farm, grilled this thing up, beautiful steak, and I said, now, now think about it. This is what God says. God says, I set before you life, this big old honking T-bone steak, and death. Blessing and cursing, and he says, therefore, choose life. But think about it. This is what human nature is like. You come up to a table, your choice is dog food and steak, and this is what we do. Hmm. And we think about it. I mean, oh well. Seriously, we do. We think about it. We, I mean, you shouldn't have to think about it. But God said, but this is what this comes down to. He says categorically, I have set before you life, death, blessing, and cursing, but we choose. He said, therefore, choose. Choose. He will not force us, as we always say. The Holy Spirit is a gentleman. He will never force himself upon anybody. He gives us the right to choose. But the thing about this verse in Deuteronomy 30 that always caught me is the fact that it says, therefore, choose life. Listen to this part. Therefore, choose life so that thou and thy seed may live. And I always remember hearing this in my spirit all those years ago, that my choices today affect my seed tomorrow. Choose life so that thou and thy seed may live. My choices, my decisions today affect my seed after me, who follow after me. But it's true. Joshua 24, 15 says here again, familiar verses. Choose you this day who you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Turn to the next page. Another very familiar passage, 1 Kings 18.21. During the wars there, he says, How long, this is speaking to God's people, how long will you halt or waver between two opinions? How long will you halt and waver between two opinions? If God be God, serve him. If Baal, then serve Baal. But you're going to serve somebody. Bob Dylan years ago, you know, when he got saved and all that kind of stuff, we were part of the church where he got saved. and see, we saw, Well, the church that he got saved in is the church we used to minister in a lot. And he did that whole album, you got to serve somebody. I don't know if you ever heard Bob Dylan's Christian album. It's really good. <laughs> but anyhow, you're going to serve somebody. You're going to make a choice. 
Ephesians 4.14 says, Do not be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, just every changing, it says, wind of doctrine that comes to town. You have to make some choices. You have to come to grips with it. So this, this is what happened. This, God gives the prodigal the right to choose. He gives every one of us the right to choose. We can choose. And every single day of our life, we, we do. We choose. We make choices over life or death. The prodigal is a type of the person who unfortunately thinks more highly of the gifts of God then, than of the giver. And I'm sure you've heard that phraseology before, but for a long time, when we even taught the basics of faith, what began to happen is people began as we, the, phrase, the terminology we use is this, people got caught up in seeking the hands of God more than the face of God. That happens so easily. In other words, let me give you an example. Uh, like in Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 28 is where it lists all the blessings and the curses of the law. But in the first two verses, it says this. It says, now, now listen to it. It says, if you will hearken diligently unto all of these commandments. Are you listening? If you will hearken diligently unto all of these commandments, which I command you this day, then all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. Okay. Now listen to it. So he said, if you hearken, hearken diligently unto all of the commandments, then all the blessings will do what? They will come upon overtake. Think about it. Think. He said that our direction needs to be towards obedience to the commandments, not towards chasing the blessings. He said, if we will live towards obedience of the commandments, what happens is you begin to draw blessings from what direction, or what, according to that verse, what direction do they come from? They come from behind you. He said they will come upon and overtake you, like on a motorway. You'll be overtaken by the blessings of God. Now, in school, I'm sure I've given this illustration before, but does anybody remember in school when they, if you had any kind of a science class, when they put iron filings out on a paper and they'd give you a, a little magnet and they'd show you the difference between negative and positive polarity? And you put these iron filings here, and if you've got negative polarity, you push this up to it, what happens? What happens? It just, you know, it just starts to push them away, doesn't it? It just pushes it away. Oh, you might get a few little odds and bits and just pushes it away. But if you turn that thing around and you start to move it with that positive polarity towards up there, it just, it just sucks to it. So what happens is, it's funny, like we used to put it this way, when you look at people's Bibles, especially in America, you know, when how we tell them that you need to, you know, underline this scripture, highlight this scripture, and we'd say it's really amazing when you look into somebody's Bible that they'll have all of the blessings and the promises of God underlined, but very few of the commandments. <laughs> and yet all of the blessings are contingent upon obedience to the commandments. Very few people underline the commandments. <laughs> all I'm trying to say is if we're only living toward the blessing, you're actually living in reverse. And so you get right up to stuff and you'll get a little here and you'll get a little there. Of, that whatever, of what God has for us, but you'll never get the fullness of the package that God desires for us to get until we really understand He's simply asking for us to become obedient, that's all. He just wants us to get into simple obedience. And I'm just saying that's, that's one of the dividing lines. It does not mean that you're not supposed to release your faith for the promises of God and all that. But again, you see, that's why obedience is better than sacrifice, why we need to understand that He's trying to get us to this first. Anyhow, so... The prodigal is a type of the person who thinks, again, more highly of the gifts of God than of the giver. Now, his very journey, point A, it says number three, the prodigal's journey, point A, his mind is full of 
plans and high expectations. In other words, you can imagine he leaves his father separated and separated unto him, given him all his living, all the promised inheritance. He's given it to him. He goes out, but he doesn't know he's hasting to destruction. And I put in there Proverbs 7.23. It speaks about, again, how the wisdom in the world, I think I shared this in the other course, but when it speaks of the loose woman in Proverbs 5, Proverbs, in Proverbs 4, Proverbs 5, Proverbs 7 in particular, when it talks about the woman who seduces a man, it's always talking about that from that angle, but really what it's speaking of, it's speaking again of the world's wisdom, how the world's wisdom will seduce you, will literally attract, draw, seduce you, get you to saunter near the loose woman's house. And it speaks about the world where there's loose living and it's easy to get along. It's a lot easier in the world. You can just do what you want to. Now you can get seduced into it. And it speaks there about how you can just get to a thing where the desire gets so, so strong. And like it says here, Proverbs 7, 28, till an arrow pierces his liver like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing that it will cost him his life. In other words, people, they get so close to the quicksand that they step in it before they know it and there are, they're caught in the trespass. Point B, he was far from home. There were no restraints from home. People don't like restraints, do they? How many of you love restraints? <laughs> of course you don't, not of the natural. But his father's house has restraints. My, my spiritual dad, Ed Cole, used to say this about it. He said, you have to understand this about the commandments. He said, when you drive down a motorway, have you ever noticed that there's white lines down the road? He used to say this, listen, he said, those white lines down the road are not to keep you from having fun. You get it? They're to keep you from killing yourself. <laughs> God's got some white lines down the road. They're not there to keep us from having fun. It's to keep us having and understanding. It's to keep us in the right lane, to keep us knowing what we're up to. You know, that, it just makes all the difference in the world. He, he, he gets far from home where there's no restraints. He wastes his substance on riotous living. Of course, it says a famine hits the land. The thing you don't plan for always happens. Anybody ever experienced that? The thing you did not plan for always happens and adds desperation to your situation. I put here, notice that the famine evidently had no effect on the father's house. Had he stayed, he would not have been affected. Luke 15, though, verse 17 and 19, it says, And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son, make me as one of thy hired servants. And when you go, like in a Bible college, they'll take these particular statements. They'll say, give me. They'll teach you about, he said, give me. They'll teach you about coming. He came to himself, and they teach you about I will arise. Point A, it says, fair-weather friends who had helped to spend the inheritance were not to be found. In other words, all those who were good buddies to you when you had money in your pocket. I, I can remember those days <laughs> before I knew the Lord. As long as you have what somebody else wants, you've got a lot of good friends. But the moment you don't have something that they've been living off of, you know, they're nowhere to be found, point B. In his desperation, it says that he finds a job feeding pigs, a job that no Jewish boy ever did. Pigs were a symbol of greed and filth and were ceremonially unclean because they chewed not the cud. To be with pigs was to absolutely hit rock bottom. He even reached the point, the scripture says, where pig food was his only option for food for himself. And I just simply put this basic truth down here. It's never, it is not God's will for people to hit rock bottom. However, through rebellion and indignation, many do reach a point of suffering before thoughts of home return. 
In the prodigal's hour of calamity, he remembered his father in the well-set table where even to be a servant was a privilege. I, I just wrote uh, to the side of this for myself. It's, you know, when you're out of fellowship with God, uh, it's really a lonely place to be, isn't it? How many of you know people so really well? If you know some people well enough to know when they're faking it, what I mean, do you, you know what I mean? Have you ever known some people that you know are miserable? They're in, they're, they're just, they're absent, their life is miserable, but they still put on a good face. You know, when they're around you, what have you. And it's the most difficult thing to witness, especially when you love people. When you see somebody that's this, they are still in, well, like psychology calls, they're in a place of denial, aren't they? But it's a lonely, lonely, lonely place to be out of the will of God, especially and it's so sad when especially you realize how quickly somebody can get back into fellowship. But this is why all of us need to, we need to be on the lookout for prodigals because there's prodigals around all of us right now. I mean, you know, this, they're all around us. Point C, he makes a decision though. He said, I will arise. Now this is the fulcrum point. This is the turning point of his life. And this is something else as well. When we fall, one of my favorite verses is in the book of Micah. I think it's the seventh chapter of Micah. It says this, it says, do not, do not, listen to this, it says, do not rejoice against me, O my enemy, when I fall, for I will arise. <laughs> I like that. Do not rejoice against me, O my enemy, when I fall, for I will arise. In other words, the issue is not whether or not you fall, you stumble, and you, you know, you find yourself on, the, on your face, because there's nobody, there's nobody, there's nobody who doesn't fall in some way, shape, or form at times. But the issue is not to stay there not to lay there, but again, it says, don't, don't rejoice over me when I make a mistake because I'm going to arise. Hallelujah. And that's what all of us have to have in our spirit. We refuse to get, we may get knocked down, but we're not knocked out. You know, that's what Paul said all through those things. Persecuted, cast down, shipwrecked, stoned, left for dead. But he said, I wasn't, I wasn't knocked out. I mean, that, that's gotta, there's got to be a fight in us. There's got to be something in us that says, I will arise. It's good to arise. Somebody just, uh, you know, arise, would you please? Yeah. <laughs> he makes the decision, I will arise. Whereas subjection to his father at once seemed a burden, he now has a greatly changed point of view. This is the turning point in his life. It is the place of repentance when you say, I will arise. So please, you know, if you find yourself in the doldrums and you find yourself just, you know, in a state, if depression is something that's trying to take you over, you need to learn how to rise up against that stuff. I, there's two major ways to get free of depression. And one of my favorite ones is, I just like this one. It says in Isaiah, sing, O ye barren. And that was revelation to me many years ago because I was feeling so dry, so dusty, so nothing. And the Lord just said to me, he said, sing, O ye barren. And basically I learned to sing. I mean, in my private time, if I sang in front of people, I'd drive them crazy. They might all cast devils out of me or something. <laughs> the point is, seriously, it's the basic truth about praise again, where God said, I've ordained praise to shut the mouth of my people's enemies. But you begin to, you, you have to arise and you have to force yourself, push yourself past your flesh and begin to do these things. He said, I will arise. This is the turning point of his life, the place of repentance. Now, point D, will his father receive him? Will he have to give an account? Listen to this. Will he have to give an account of his sin in detail? He went away in pride and defiance. He's returning a beggar. His wallet's empty. Every eye in the house is seen in shame. His trip home must have been filled with misery. I mean, can you imagine? You're... He's made the decision, okay, I'm in a pig pen. This is not the best of places to be. <laughs> this is not the kind of food I really prefer. You know, my father, even the servants in my father's house, 
are living like kings compared to what I'm going through. And he finally comes to himself, something, he snaps, he twigs, as they say over here. He said, I'm going to arise. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to go back to church. I'm going to get back there. And I'm just, you know, God help us if we could ever get to that point where our pride is so stripped. Like I said, it's not God's will that you get knocked to your face, knocked to your feet. But I guarantee you, if you get knocked to your feet, knocked to your face, rather, God will take advantage of that time if you'll have ears to hear, you know, to, to, to help you out. But it says, he finds, however, when he comes that the Father's never lost hope in him or ceased to be on the lookout for him. And turn the page. So Luke 15, verse 20 through 24, reading it from the King James there on page 25, it says, And he arose, he came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion. And it says, He ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and I am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to make merry. Now, to me, this is an incredible picture here. And I, I remember Jesus is talking to these Pharisees and the Sadducees. And again, talk about a difference in style. If you were to, a little bit later, if you go on, I, don't, I think it's in Luke or maybe it's in Matthews, when he gives the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Remember the one who, the publican who beats his breast and says, Father, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Pharisee says, Father, thank you that I am not like that sinful man over there. And Jesus said, who will go down to his house justified? And he said, that man there that beat his breast and said, have mercy on me, not the person who thinks he's righteous. All this here is about people who think they're righteous in themselves is what he's really getting to. He's really dealing with these Pharisees and what have you. But the thing that hit me when you look at this is think about this. And this is trippy. I mean, I do a whole teaching, you know, about uh, from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians about it's similar. It's not exactly like this, but remember when this young man is caught in incest and the, and the very sin of incest, it says. And Paul has to, he said, and he, he actually commands the rest of the church to expel him from their fellowship. He says, you know, he's got to be kicked out of the church because a little leaven will leaven the whole up. And then in the second chapter, so they evidently they do it because in the second book of Corinthians, Paul says that this rebuke that this man has received, he said, from all of you is enough. He said, because this man has, re he's, he's come and evidently he'd redeemed himself, but it says, now I beg you, he said, to reinstate him into your affections. And then it says this, I write this to test your attitude, to see whether you'll be, be obedient to us in all things. But it's an incredible thing to understand. God's, in some cases, God says, you know, that you have to just turn your back on some people for a while when they choose the way of sin. That is love. But today, I think I taught on that when I teach the love walk. But today, if we were to actually be biblical and turn our back on some of the people. Now, I'm not talking about people who just make mistakes. But I'm talking about people who've made the decision to be rebels. They've made the decision to stay out of the things of God. And they've just done some horrific things, and they, there's no repentance in them at all yet. God's Word says that we're supposed to not go after them. In fact, we're supposed to let them go. In fact, it says you're to have no fellowship, them with, fellowship with them whatsoever. But what happens today is if somebody does get that kind of discipline from a church, they'll just go to another church 
or a pastor doesn't care, doesn't know much, and they'll just say, oh, well, those people don't love you very much. Come on in here, we'll love you, and go kissy-kissy all over you. <laughs> and this guy will never receive the discipline that he needs, and so he'll just go from church to church or whatever, causing trouble. And people will allow him to linger in his sin, and he'll never really get free from this junk. Now, I said all that to say it looks, it's, it's similar in that the father here, notice when the prodigal believes, the father doesn't chase him here, does he? Does he? You've made your decision. He's going to let you do what you want to do. But the beauty of the whole story is when you see this issue of him standing on the steps, standing on the porch, as it were, the picture is that he's never ceased looking for your return. But there's something that we have to see. You know, God, again, we are free moral agents. You can make a choice to go that way if you want to, and God will let you go. But here's the father standing on, on the on the, on the uh, front porch, as it were, and when he sees him, when he sees this guy coming back and sees his son coming back, and he runs to him, it says, and, and embraces him and grabs him. And, and the part I love, and let me just read it on the outline here. This, this, to me, is just astounding. It says, the father had never ceased looking for his son. His heart had mourned for his son who was lost. And he said he puts a ring on his hand, and a ring, is, it means a reinvestment of authority. The ring in those days for the father to put a ring on somebody, that represented, that was the family line. That meant you are now reinstituted into the place of authority you were before you left. The cloak means the same thing. It speaks to this. A, a ring is a personal signature to give authority. He was given his authority back. This only, this only though, because I uh, put down here, because of true repentance. There was no hesitation from the father. He runs to meet him in an instant. I mean, in an instant. I hope you really do hear this. I know that you may be warm, and this is not, like I said, all is inspirational, some of the other stuff we do, but in an instant, this guy's past is rolled away forever. I, if you don't hear anything else about this simple, pro, this simple thing, this is what Jesus Christ, I believe with my whole heart, is trying to communicate about what makes this new dispensation, what he was trying to bring, what he was introducing, so different from any other dealings with man in the old covenant. In an instant, his past is rolled away forever. Jesus shows the love of the Father in heaven for the repentant individual who makes the decision to, remove, to return home. Point six, he said, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. So I want you to see this. There was no excusing. There was no, he gave no excuses. He did not cover. And this is, you know, I say this to people all the time when I preach, but please, you do know, God loves honesty. Somebody say amen besides me. Amen. God loves honesty. You do, you gotta, you really, please hear me. God can't work with a lie. You hear me? God can't work with the lie. And God knows the truth anyhow. And just the most liberating thing when you finally get to that place where you make the decision, I would rather be embarrassed in front of people than in front of God. And when you're wrong, you're wrong. Hallelujah. And you're able to say, I missed it. I made a mistake. I was wrong. Whether you have to do that with your wife, with your husband, with your family, with your children, with your boss. But it is the most liberating thing when you, when you are able to just stand before God and, open, and mean it and say it. I was wrong. I mean, it's amazing when you know people that they just try to justify everything. And all you do is build wounds and build obstacles for your future. It's incredible. But here this guy comes. He puts no blame on others. He doesn't excuse his sin. It's a clear confession of his own guilt. 
Though there's a feeling of unworthiness, he's immediately restored to sonship. The prodigal represents us all. As he had sinned, so had we. As he viewed his transgression chiefly against God, so must we. As he confessed he was unworthy, so we must. But as he accepted his Father's grace, so should we. But this next part that I put, note, note the Father's silence regarding the confession. Now, this is the part that I love the most. It took about five minutes, right? But listen to this. The guy comes home. I get to be the father. <laughs> the guy comes home. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Does the father look at him and say, well, it's about time you got back here, and now we're going to talk about some things. I've heard about this, and I've heard about I mean, does he make, does, does this father who represents God and represents the heart of the kingdom, does he make one mention about everything that he'd done? And the Bible says loose lip, and we're about to read about the other brother in a minute here when we get to the next hour. And he doesn't make one reference. Think about it. Just really think about this. This today, I was thinking about it again, just the grace of God. That's why I teach the love walk and teach that grace message so much. It is phenomenal to me that when I sin, that I can run to my Father, and He does not upbraid me. I love that verse, and James, remember, says, if, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. I love that part. Up, upbraid means to fault find. The fact that I go to God, and I say, Father, I have sinned against you. Please forgive me. And I mean, please, I know it's basic, but to really understand, he does not read me a list of everything that I did. He does not bring back up into my remembrance everything that I may have done last year or how many times I did it before. This son was out with loose women. He spent all his money. He was gambling. He was whoring. He was doing everything. The Bible says what, it really, what he was really doing in the Greek, what he really did. The father doesn't make one mention of it because he comes to him with an honest heart and says, I've sinned. Forgive me. I'm sorry. I'm not worthy to be anything. The Father doesn't say one word to him. I, I, hope, I hope that at some point in life really hits you. This is what is painful about grace. Let me tell you something. If you ever really do experience, really do experience absolute undeserved favor, when, when it begins to happen between you and God, much less between people, when you know you're standing in front of somebody that knows exactly what you did, exactly how foul you were, exactly what a liar you were, exactly what a, what a whatever you were, and you just see and you sense no rejection, no condemnation whatsoever, and they just love you and treat you like you did nothing, I want to tell you that hurts. <laughs> There's a pain to that kind of love because you want to suffer. <laughs> you really do. There's part of you that wants some punishment because I know I deserve it so desperately. Please hit me. Please do something. You know, I deserve to be, you know, cast out into the woods. I need to lock me in a room for a month or, or take this away from me, take that away from me. But when you're instantaneously restored, right back to where you were when you left, the same authority, the same relationship, the same covering, not only that, the dude brings the best cow in and you get a barbecue. <laughs> I mean, you got steak, you got food, you've got singers and musicians and everybody is rejoicing. And I'm just saying, oh God, wouldn't it be amazing to find a church like that? <laughs> Sorry. Where there's somebody understood 
what it really meant to offer grace to people. And, to, uh, and it doesn't. But see, we're talking about those who openly, honestly confess and show forth the fruits of repentance. But this is the most incredible picture. This is still something I believe with my whole heart. 99% of the body of Christ does not have a revelation of. They are so longing to be punished. It is, a, like I said, I don't know if you can understand what I'm saying. It's a painful thing when you're actually confronted with the true love of God because our human nature... So, we, you may not think so, but your human nature wants to be punished. It really does. Some, you want to pay. You want to pay for what you did. But in God, you can never pay for what you did. It's a gift. And that pain is, like I said, it's the goodness of God. Remember Romans, and when we talk about love walk, Romans 2, 4. Don't you understand it's the goodness of God that's intended to draw your hearts and minds to repentance. When you see how good he is, it breaks you and it makes you, you just do not want to sin against that person ever again because the love is just too potent. It's just too strong. We've got to stop there. Father, I just thank you for your word and I thank you, Father, for somehow helping us see what you were trying to say to these Pharisees, to these Sadducees, about the difference between this new kingdom that you were ushering in and that that they were operating in where it was just nothing but laws and legalism and structure and just stuff that only pointed out people's problems but it never gave them life. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.